The word vipassana in Pali literally means seeing clearly. Seeing what clearly? First, it means seeing all the individual constituents of experience, all the different elements, all the different dhammas. It also means seeing clearly the general characteristics of all experience, that is impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Of these, what is the hardest to understand for most people is both the idea and the experience of selflessness, of egolessness, anatta. In some ways, it's the most puzzling aspect of the Buddhist teaching. If there's no self, who came here? Who's making effort? Who experiences karmic results? Who is reborn? These are the questions that get asked all the time. If there's no self, who gets angry? Or who falls in love? Or who has memories? What does it mean to say that there's no self? It must mean something, or the Buddha wouldn't have said it. (laughs) When people hear this idea, no self or selflessness, sometimes they get afraid. You know, well, I don't want to know what this is about, because maybe they imagine falling into some black hole of non-existence, of giving up the self. Or maybe dissolving in some cosmic flash, you know, like a bolt of lightning comes down and, and then there's no self. <laughs> maybe sometimes people have the idea of dissolving in a vat of undifferentiated blankness. <laughs> These are all the things that have been suggested. <laughs> but those are all just some ideas, some strange ideas about what selflessness is about. Because it's really the very jewel of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's the jewel of the teaching. In our practice, especially in the context of a long retreat, which is one of the reasons this retreat is so special, It gives us the opportunity in practice to begin to experience for ourselves exactly what this teaching, what this understanding of selflessness is. And it becomes a radically transformative way of understanding who we are and the nature of the world. In some way, it turns everything inside out. I think you've perhaps begun to get a sense already, through the growing observing power of the mind, of awareness, that we're not actually 
who we thought ourselves to be. That we're not the body. We're not the thoughts that are coming through. And we're not the various emotions which come and go. We can begin to get a sense that the whole sense of I, of ego, of self, is a mental construction. It's a mental fabrication. It doesn't really point to anything that is really there. As we begin to feel, get a feel for this, it's really, in some ways, both a surprise, but also it's a great relief. Just imagine for one moment if you actually were each thought that came up in your mind. (laughs) That would be pretty discouraging. Tonight, what I would like to talk about and to explore is how the mind (coughs) creates this very deeply conditioned conditioned sense of self that we hold on to so strongly, that's such a common belief, such a common conditioning. How does the mind create it? And how is it also possible to free ourselves from the prison of this concept. There is one factor of mind which keeps us bound in the conventional notion, the conventional understanding of self. And it's interesting because it is the same factor which can also be a strong support for mindfulness. And so we have to have a very clear, decisive vision of exactly how this quality of mind works, how we can use it to support our practice, and how not to get caught by it in the creation of the sense of I. And this is the factor of perception. And in the Buddhist psychology, perception has a very specific meaning. It's that attribute or that factor, that quality of mind, which has the function to pick out the distinguishing marks of an object, of an experience, and store it in memory. So, for example, when we see different colors and we recognize one is being red, one is being blue, that is the quality of perception. It's picking out what distinguishes the experience from others like it, and it remembers through a concept, stores in memory through a concept. It recognizes man, woman, tree. Our whole use of language has to do with perception, this quality of recognition. Okay, when there is perception, recognition, along with mindfulness, then the perception frames the experience so that we can observe it more deeply. And this is exactly the function of the mental noting. The noting is not about mindfulness, it's about perception. 
we're recognizing, we're framing each experience with a concept recognizing the nature of that experience. In, out, rising, falling, pressure, tightness. All of these are perceptions. We're framing that moment. But we're framing it in order for mindfulness, for awareness, to go deeper into its nature, to taste its nature, to sink into it, to understand the three characteristics. So when perception is there as a support for mindfulness, it actually furthers our practice. But often perception happens where there is not mindfulness present. There is not awareness present. And we are settling then for a surface recognition of whatever is appearing. And then we solidify that recognition with the different concepts we use. Just as an example, and this is a example of our daily lives that impacts a lot how we live. We meet somebody, we form certain perceptions about them, then we meet them again, and what happens? The mind kicks in with our perception, our concepts about that person. It's as if we have created a nice little box in which we've put that person and then relate to them again and again through the filter of our own concepts, our own perceptions. And it's very rare, and it's a, it's a rare ability to be able to be with each person that we meet, and especially people that we meet many times, to be with them in a fresh way. Not to let the solidity of our perceptions be a filter on the direct experience of the moment. And it's the same with any repetitive experience. You know, we recognize it, we put a concept on it, and then it's almost as if what we experience again and again is the concept, not the experience. This keeps us from seeing things in a fresh way, in a new way, in a different way. We just stay on the habitual level of our conditioned recognition. There's another story which illustrates this. This happened years ago, and the story has just stuck in my mind over all these years because it's so poignant and so indicative of how we live. The son of a friend of mine was in, in the first or second grade, quite young, and the teacher asked him, what's the color of apples, of an apple? And he said, white. Of course, the teacher says, no, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, apples are red, apples are green, apples are golden, they're not white. The boy was really very persistent in what he was saying. The teacher kept saying, no. And it's just so interesting, because from the boy's point of view, you cut an apple open, what color is it? 
It's white. It's more white than anything else. <laughs> but that's, that wasn't our usual way of, of perceiving it. You know, our usual way of thinking of apples are red. So the more we get stuck in our perception, it really is like blinders on us so that we can open to other ways of perceiving something, other ways of experiencing something. So this is the factor of perception, and it's going to play a very critical role in the creation of the sense of self. It's that factor which recognizes an experience and stores it in memory through a concept. There are two perceptions which we have about the world, about our own lives and experience, which are the origin of a multitude of erroneous conclusions. So I want to talk about these two perceptions, which really lead us astray in so many ways. Because it's these two perceptions which keep us from a deeper understanding of the Dharma. The first of them is the perception we have of the solidity of things because of the rapidity of change. It's called solidity through continuity. We see things as events rather than processes. A friend of ours, Wes Nisker, wrote a book you might know. It's called Crazy Wisdom. And in it, he has a nice little section on this. And he's talking about the Hopi language and language in general. He says, in English, generally we have two nouns which we take to be real, real things, on opposite sides of a verb which we take to be less than real. It's, it's like we concretize our view of the world, our perception of the world, through our language. We've created in language things, which are the nouns. And the verb is somehow just linking it and not quite real. He, he says in the book that in the Hopi language, all the nouns are verbs, because events and things and objects are understood to be always in process. But they're not some solid, unchanging entity in and of itself. As long as we are misguided by this perception of solidity of things, table, bell, floor, as long as we're living in the world of this perception of the solidity of things, it masks for us the very deep and transforming experience of impermanence, of the momentariness, of the emptiness of everything, the insubstantiality. We're living on a surface level of perception. And it blinds us 
to a more fundamental underlying reality. So then we ask the question, well, why do we have this perception if it's not true? If it's not truly how things are, why is it that it appears to be true? It appears to be true for a couple of reasons. One is because of the rapidity of change. For example, when we go to the movies, what do you see? We see a continuity of forms and figures and story. We're not seeing separate frames of film. And if we did, we'd probably want our money back. (laughs) But really, that's what's happening. It's just separate frames of film going very quickly, but we don't see it. And so we are missing, in this case on purpose, a more fundamental level of what is really going on. We are lost in the world of the appearance of it, not seeing the truth of the momentariness. There are thousands of examples of this. You know, a movie, film is one, electric light. It looks like it's just one steady thing. Of course it's not, it's a current but it's happening so quickly we don't see the flowing nature. We also believe things to be solid because we observe them from a distance. We haven't trained ourselves to look very closely. You know, tomorrow maybe when it's light out and you go outside and you look off into the distance When you look off into the distance, basically what we see is a solid mass of color. You know, maybe with gradations or shadings. But we don't see individual trees because we're not close enough to see that. And so things take on a solid appearance. Then you look closer and you see individual trees. You look even closer than that and you see so many parts of each tree. You break it down, break it down, break it down. You see there's nothing solid there at all. Okay, this brings us back to what we're all doing here. We can break through this illusion that we live in, that the whole world lives in. We can break through this illusion, the illusory nature of the solidity of things by very close and careful observation. We begin to see the rapidity of change. There's something in practice which I call the NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, and as we practice, the NPMs go up. (laughs) When people first start meditation, maybe they have You know, they're they're meditating at a rate of five NPMs. But as as we train ourselves to pay attention, to be aware, we start noticing many, many, many things per minute. And so the solidity of it all, the solidity of our experience begins to dissolve. We see that it's in a state of, of continual change, momentary change. When we don't look carefully, we don't see it. 
like to read something which I saw this in a Newsweek magazine. This is also a number of years ago, but it's about beliefs that happen from lack of close observation. This was in the science section. It said, everything we have seen indicates that the solar system is far more dynamic than we originally anticipated. Before astronomers conceded that the outer planets might have been active in their first billion years of existence, but figured the last three billion were basically a holding pattern. Now we suspect that very few things are unchanged over three billion years. <laughs> well, that's a start. <laughs> and we'll start with three billion yet. Maybe there's one NP billion years. <laughs> but as we observe closely in three billion years, we could observe quite a lot of change. <laughs> I mean, in one sense, it's funny. And, but in another sense, it really does reflect sort of our own usual perception. You know, if just in, in ordinary conversation, somebody came up to you and said, you know, well, did this building change from yesterday to today? You know, the, the ordinary person, no, it's pretty much the same. Of course, it's not the same at all. And then we carry that over to the sense of ourselves. So it's through the practice, through a careful observation, we begin just to free ourselves from this hallucination of perception, that things are solid, that they stay the same. We see the momentary, continual change. There's a second hallucination of perception. The first was solidity because of continuity, not seeing the momentariness of phenomena. The second hallucination of perception is our perception of solidity because we don't see the composite nature of experience. We don't see that things are actually made up of different parts. There's a very classic example of this in the Buddhist text. It's one of the most famous stories in this regard. It was a teaching of deconstructing the sense of self. It's in a book called the Melinda Pano, The Questions of King Melinda. And it was set, you know, some hundreds of years after the Buddha's death uh, as a remnant of the Greek empire in Asia of Alexander the Great, uh, in what's now, I think, Afghanistan or someplace in that area, there was a Greek king, descendant of that line, very interested in the Dharma. There was this Arhant monk, Nagasena, and he and King Melinda uh, had these dialogues, which are, which are recorded in this book, and it's quite interesting. It's just questions and responses, the king and Nagasena. 
Nagasena used the example of a chariot. And he asked the king, where, you know, they had the chariot, they had the king's chariot, and Nagasena asked the king, well, where is the chariot? Where does the chariot exist? Is the chariot the wheel? No. Is the chariot the... I'm a little lost here because I don't know all the parts of chariots. <laughs> you know, is the chariot the backrest or <laughs> whatever? No, 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 no. You know, the chariot's not any one of these things. Chariot is a concept which is used to indicate the relationship of all these parts to one another. But it's not an existing thing in and of itself. There's no thing called chariot, which you can point to. It's a composite. It's a relationship. Now, in just the same way, the chariot does not exist, but is a composite, exactly the same way this body, what we call body, does not exist as something in and of itself. It's a composite of many different elements. Car, house, body, self, the idea of self, is a composite. It's a word we use to describe a constellation of many different changing elements. It doesn't point to anything in and of itself. Okay, now to bring all of this together, I hope. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, when this factor of perception overshadows mindfulness, what happens is that we see, perceive, recognize the outer appearance of something. We create a concept, we create a word to describe that appearance and then invest that word, invest in that word a reality that it does not have in and of itself. It doesn't mean that we don't use these words. It doesn't mean that we don't employ this thing which is a composite of parts. Car may not be an existing thing in and of itself, and yet we get into it and drive it. But we understand we're not becoming attached, we're not becoming identified with, we're not investing a reality to this thing we call car, free of the understanding that it's simply a relationship of parts. There's a very um, striking example of this, which I think will illuminate this whole notion for you. And that is the example of a rainbow. You know, we see this, this appearance of this beautiful phenomenon in the sky. And the appearance is obvious to all of us. But what actually is a rainbow? I'm not exactly sure what a rainbow is. 
but it's something of <laughs> water molecules and air molecules and light coming through and whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's that. It's these conditions which are coming together and give rise to the appearance of something. But there is no thing in and of itself which is a rainbow. You can't, oh, there it is, I have it. Which is why all those people searching for the pot of gold at the end of it never find it. Because the rainbow itself is not an existing thing. It's an appearance arising out of certain conditions. The notion of self, what we call self, is an appearance arising out of certain conditions. When we are living in this world of superficial perception, without the power of mindfulness, of awareness, to understand what is underneath it, our mind continually creates concepts about the appearance of things. And then we invest a reality in these concepts and live in that world which we have created. I'd like to give a few examples of how we do this. Because it's very much how we live our lives, how people live our lives, or their lives, how the world is being lived. How much, or how great a sense of ourself comes from our concept of the body? A lot. We identify a lot with the body. If, if we had to say, okay, what distinguishes you from me? It's my body. That's the, that's the superficial appearance. You know, some friends of ours have had this laser surgery done. And it's quite amazing because they go in and <laughs> it, it's actually astounding because they take a video inside, you know, of the operation being done, and then people come back from the operation, they have this video, you know. And I've seen some of them. It's totally amazing because you are on the inside of the body watching, you know, whatever procedure it is being performed. Seeing the body from that side of things, there's not that much identification with it. <laughs> There really isn't. <laughs> I mean, you see. <laughs> you know, the organs and the blood and the this and the that. And that's not who I am. <laughs> it's because we have a very superficial recognition of the body. We, we recognize the superficial appearance. We we call that my body, we identify with it, think that that's who we are. But it is not seeing beyond that. It's not seeing beyond the appearance. 
Now, it's in this respect that there's a very traditional Buddhist meditation. It's called the 32 parts of the body, where you... It's a, it's a concentration technique, where you name and visualize you know, head, of the, head of the hair, head of the body, teeth, nails, and then it goes through all the organs, and, and it's very powerful because it really begins to awaken us to the fact that what we thought, what we're calling the body, is not really what's there, that it's this composite of all kinds of things that individually we wouldn't identify with at all. We wouldn't call self or I. I had a funny experience when this is very early on. I had first gone to Asia, to India. It's about 25 years ago. And I was in Bodh Gaya practicing. And I don't know how, where the idea came from, whether it was from my teacher or it was my own idea, but suggested that uh, I shave my head. And that was the first time that I had even considered it. And it was just astounding to me what an intense idea that was for me. <laughs> that somehow I had been so identified you know, with my hair. <laughs> so shaving it, just the thought of shaving it, it was this big, huge event in my life. But I did it. And what was so interesting and amazing is that one second after it was done, I realized it had no importance whatsoever. <laughs> the bad hair wasn't me, and my, the absence of it wasn't me. And it's been good practice for what's happened since. <laughs> I'm glad I started training back then. <laughs> But it was really a powerful lesson, you know, in just seeing we, we become so identified with an aspect of the body as being who we are, as being self, and it's not at all. I'd like to do a little experiment right now to indicate another way of how we get attached to the concept of body and how we can go beyond it. Just now, as you're sitting there, if you sit comfortably, just move your finger slowly, which itself is quite a miracle. I mean, how does that happen? But leave that question aside. Just <laughs> focus on something else. Okay, so just be with the sensations. Be with the sensations of the movement. You're moving it very slowly and just feeling the sensations of the movement. What happens to the idea of finger? The form, the image of finger. When you're just with the momentary sensations, there's no finger. It's really just sensations in space, a flow of sensations, changing sensations. There's no finger, there's no hand, there's no body. All of that is a concept, it's an image.
when we observe carefully, the whole form of the body disappears. Okay, there's another whole realm of concepts which we create, which are a huge burden in our lives. Huge. And to the degree that we can see its conceptual nature, we really enlighten ourselves to a very significant degree. And that is the concepts we've created and the reality we are creating of past and future. And we've talked about this a little bit from time to time. The understanding that everything we call past and everything we call future is nothing more than a thought in the present moment. You should have a very clear understanding of that by now, because, you know, just sitting all of these weeks. How much of the time has been spent in the past or in the future? And yet, what is really happening? What's happening is that there's a thought in the present moment which we're getting lost in. And we're creating a whole concept in our minds of past, and imagining that the past exists as some reality somewhere back there, or the future is some reality out ahead of us. And we forget that that is a mental construct. That our experience of it is as light and transparent and as insubstantial as a passing momentary thought. When we see this and remember it, when we're aware enough of what's happening in the moment, it's like this huge burden of past and future just falls off our shoulders. To deal with the whole past and to deal with the whole future, it's no wonder people are exhausted. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> it is. To deal with the arising of a simple thought, that's easy. Can be easy. <laughs> if we're aware, if we know, yeah, this is just a thought right now, that's all. There's a line from St. Augustine. I actually read in the beginning of one of my spy books. <laughs> you know, it's one of those lines that uh, they, they start books with. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> A little spiritual culture. <laughs> he said, if the past really exists, where is it? <laughs> you know, where is it? It exists as a thought. That's where it exists. But when we don't understand this, and when we 
have created through our concept. It's like there are certain thoughts. We have a perception about them. Yes, these are the thoughts of planning, of anticipating. Let's call this future. Okay, there's a perception. We distinguish those thoughts from all the other thoughts. We put a concept onto that perception. We recognize it. Okay, this is future. And then we start believing in the concept. And the same thing with past. To the degree that we believe in the reality of these constructions, they tremendously influence how we feel about our experience. And you can see that very clearly on the retreat itself. There are days when the thought, oh, there are two more months, must feel like torture. (laughs) How will I ever survive two more months of this? What's happened? The mind has created a thought. It's a thought in the mind. It's built this notion of time. We buy into it, and it weighs us down. Or perhaps the thought comes, oh, two more months. I wish it were two more years. You know, because our practice is going well, and we feel energized. Same thought. When we don't see the nature of it, we get lost in that mental construct, and it conditions our whole worldview, our whole experience of the moment. Okay, so the concept of the body, we identify with that. Concepts of time, we get lost in that. There's a lot of concepts of self-images. We create different images of ourselves and then feel constricted in some way. Common images, good yogi or bad yogi. And I'm doing well, I'm doing terribly. Or image about our roles in the world. You know, of teacher or student or parent or child or whatever. To the degree that we are identified with a role, with a self-image, we are not responding immediately and directly We're not connecting with immediacy to what's actually going on. We're living through the filter of that particular self-image or that particular role. Okay, these are just examples of different concepts that we've created and then are imprisoned by. The last one I'll mention, although there are many, and we could go have a whole talk just about different concepts, but the heart of the matter for tonight is how through perception and the creation of concepts, we have constructed the idea of self, of I. Because when we look at experience, which is the whole point of the retreat. It's to come out of the illusion of things and to settle into the awareness what is actually happening, what what is really here in my experience, free of concepts. What is it that we find? We find that we are what we call self, what we call I, 
is a constellation of continually changing elements of mind and body, mental elements, physical elements, in constant change. There is no solid core to it. One of my teachers used a phrase which came up many, many times in my practice and really served me. He would talk often of empty phenomena rolling on. That's, that's what this is. What we call self is empty phenomena rolling on. Thoughts and sounds and sensations and images and feelings and all of the constituent elements. There's one image which I've used very often, but I think is helpful to understand the conceptual nature of the idea of self. And that's the example of the Big Dipper. The old, good old Big Dipper. <laughs> you know, you go out at night and you look up in the sky and it's a very easy constellation to recognize. There it is. I'll abbreviate this whole little story since many of you have heard it many times. There's really no Big Dipper up there. <laughs> there isn't. It's certain points of light in a certain relationship to one another. There's a certain perception. We recognize the pattern. We put a name Big Dipper. We and then we see Big Dipper. And what does that do? It separates out those stars from all the others in the sky. But we're creating that separation through the concept. The stars actually are just part of the unity of it all. Joseph is the same as Big Dipper. And each one, each one of you, the sense of self, the, the sense of self and the name we give this sense of self, that is like Big Dipper. It's the appearance coming from a constellation of continually changing elements. Just like there's no Big Dipper up in the sky, there is no Joseph. Joseph is a name which is put on a rainbow. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's interesting about the Big Dipper, and you can try tonight, I don't know if it's clear enough, but go outside and try not to see Big Dipper. It's really hard. We have been so conditioned to see things in a certain way. It's very difficult not to see it. If it's so hard not to see Big Dipper, you can imagine how difficult it is not to see self, not to see Joseph, not to see each one of us. Because we've been so conditioned to perceive things in a particular way. But that's what our practice is about. Because we're living imprisoned in that perception. We're living imprisoned in that concept, and it's not true. 
Okay, even when we begin to differentiate the different elements of experience, we begin to see, yes, what we call Joseph or self is really is a composite of many changing elements. And that, I think, becomes increasingly clear as we sit and we just pay attention to our experience moment after moment. Yes, sensations, thoughts, feelings, sounds. There's still another way in which the sense of self is created and strengthened. And that is through the process of identification, not with the whole appearance of it, but the identification with each of the constituent elements. So, for example, when there's a thought in the mind and we're not aware, we're not mindful, this wrong view, it's the factor of wrong view, it jumps in and it takes the thought to be self in the form of the feeling, my thought, or I'm thinking. That factor of identification creates the felt sense of I because we're identifying with the different elements that are arising. We do it with emotions. Anger comes, sadness comes, happiness comes. Are we satisfied to rest in the simple awareness of that? No. These emotions come, and our conditioned response often is to identify with those emotions. I'm angry, my anger, my happiness, my sadness. That I and mine is extra. We're adding that to the simplicity of an emotion arising and being known. We are adding this extra dimension of I and mine through the process of identification. We don't stop there. We don't even stop with I'm feeling angry or my anger. We can then build a whole superstructure. I'm an angry person. I'm a fearful person. It's like more and more and more and more this this structure, this skyscraper of self. And it's all built on top of the simplicity of a simple experience in the moment. That's what is really there. It might be a thought. It might be a sound. It might be a bodily sensation. It might be an image. Now, the practice is really coming back to absolute simplicity. And it's so incredibly restful and freeing. Perhaps the most subtle place of identification even as we begin to disidentify with all of the phenomena that make up the appearance of Big Dipper, that make up the appearance of self, even when we begin to see that it really is all part of a passing show, empty phenomena rolling on, still in a very subtle way, we can be caught in the identification with the knowing itself, with the awareness itself, and so create that sense of an observer, of a witness, 
who is knowing all of this. And so as our practice continues and our awareness becomes more refined, we begin to turn the awareness back on itself to see the empty nature of consciousness, the empty nature of awareness. So there's no identification with that either. There's one writer named Wei Wu Wei. He described this whole creation of the self, of the ego, very nice way. He said, the creation of the ego, the creation of the sense of self, is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> I love that image. You know, this dog barking up a tree that's not there. When we rest in the empty awareness of all arising appearances, and you can say this in many ways, you know, appearances arising in emptiness, resting in empty awareness, where there's no identification with anything at all, then we can stop barking. We stop creating, creating and recreating this sense, this notion, this belief, this self-constructed reality of ego, of self, of I, of mind. I'd like to close just with this quotation from Kala Rinpoche, who's the great Tibetan Lama who recently died. And he really summed all of this up very succinctly. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We're living in the world of the concepts arising through perception. There is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. Not being identified with anything at all. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all.